0: Today we are starting our new series and going through the book of Exodus. So we just wrapped up a series on the kingdom. It was called the kingdom. We talked about the kingdom of God. I did that for a while. We're going to be, for the next eight or nine weeks, we're going to be going through the book of Exodus, uh, doing a little bit of Old Testament. Uh, this is a story that, you know, some of you guys may have heard some of these stories. Some of these stories may be new to you. Uh, it's going to be a little bit different. I'm really excited about this. And by the way, Exodus is the second book in the Bible. It's after Genesis. So Genesis and then Exodus. So if you want to start making your way there, you can. Uh, so uh, the book of Exodus really tells the story of God's people. All right. And we're going to look at uh, Moses is going to be the man Main character uh, in this story. Um, so you may have heard of a guy named Abraham. Well, early on, uh, after uh, the Garden of Eden, uh, Adam and Eve, they sin. All right, sin enters into the world, uh, and God begins to enact a plan to make things right. And he goes to Abraham in Genesis 12 and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make it make a nation out of your descendants, and, uh, and I'm going to make you into a great people, and you're going to be a blessing to all. Nations. And he tells Abraham that you're going to possess this land that you're in now, which is the land of Canaan. But first, your descendants are going to be in slavery for 400 years, going to be oppressed. And so, uh, Abraham, if you've heard of the story, has his son Isaac. And then Isaac has Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob has Joseph along with 11 other sons. And, and, you know, Joseph has his coat of many colors. And his brothers get jealous. And they decide to sell Joseph into slavery in Egypt. Joseph goes to Egypt. And he ends up, God is with Joseph and uh, Joseph is able to rise up to second in command in Egypt and uh, his family, he moves his family out there, 70 people in all. But then Joseph passes away, his family passes away, their descendants are there and a new pharaoh comes to power and this new pharaoh begins to be threatened by the Israelites because they're growing in number and so he decides to put them into forced slavery. And so that's kind of the setting, that's where we find ourselves Today, is we've got the Israelites, uh, close to uh, a million people, it's estimated by this time, who are being, uh, who are forced into slavery, and uh, there we go, who are forced into slavery. So, the people of God, uh, enslaved for 400 years, they begin to cry out to God. They begin to cry out uh, because of the oppression, and God hears them. We read in Exodus chapter 2 that God hears the cries of his people, and now we're going to pick up in Exodus chapter 3. That's where we're going to start, and God is about to act. God's about to do something, but he's probably going to do it in a way that it's going to surprise us. So we're going to start in Exodus chapter 3, and I'm going to read the first six verses of Exodus chapter 3. It'll also be on the screen behind me. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So in this passage, Moses meets his maker. And we see we learn a lot about God just in this one passage. And this is really the first time in the Bible that God is going to personally introduce himself to somebody. That he's personally going to reveal his character, his name to any human being. And we see a few things about God here. Number one, we see that God is compassionate. Compassionate. In verse 7, if we were to read just one more verse ahead, uh, it says, The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry. Because of their taskmasters, I know their sufferings. God knows your sufferings. God knows the sufferings of His people. God is compassionate. We also see that God is holy. So Moses is approaching, and, and he says, Stop right there. Don't come any closer. Take the sandals off of your feet. The the place that you are standing is holy ground. Holiness, that word holiness, it means other than. It means of a totally different essence. And you see... Human beings, because we have sin in our lives, we cannot dwell in the presence. God cannot dwell in the presence of sin or sinners. God is totally pure. He is totally other than us. And I don't know about anybody. I don't think there's anybody in here that would say, yeah, I'm totally pure and totally perfect. And I've never messed up in my entire life. I don't think there's anybody here that would say that. But if that's true, if we've got even one sin in our lives, it means we can't approach the presence of God. So that's a little bit about who God is, but what is God doing? Well, God is—he's bringing his people out of slavery, and he's bringing them into the Promised Land. He's going to keep the covenant promise that he made to Abraham over 400 years earlier. God doesn't forget his promises. You know, I think I imagine that the people of Israel—they uh, were number one, probably doubting that God was going to keep his promise to bring them into the promised land. And number two, uh, there were so many generations removed, they probably had forgotten completely. They may have just forgotten about the promise altogether. Anybody identify with that? You feel like maybe you've been suffering for so long or you've been going through something for so long, you just begin to doubt that maybe God's not even there. Maybe he doesn't even care. Maybe God's not really going to keep his promises. I'm sure the people of Israel felt like that before. 400 years is a long time to be in slavery. It's a lot of generations. But he's going to keep his covenant. Number two, God is going to demonstrate his power. Here's a key theme that I want you to remember as we go throughout this series. You're going to hear this a lot. You're going to hear this phrase, that they may know that I am the Lord. God's going to do what God's going to do because he wants Israel and he wants Pharaoh and he wants Egypt to know, I am the Lord the key teaching around this is that the universe revolves around God for his glory, not me for my glory. That's one of the biggest teachings we're going to see in the book of Exodus. And lastly, who is God using? Well, God's going to use this guy named Moses. Now, Moses is 80 years old by this time. And he's a shepherd. When we think of Moses, we might think of him as a hero. Maybe you saw that movie Exodus. I didn't see it, but I heard it was kind of weird. Um, but, you know, Moses is, I don't think he's like that in the movie, okay? He's not that guy in real life. Moses was a quite average, ordinary man. It's this ordinary man that God's going to call him. Look what God calls him to do in verse 10, Exodus 3:10. He says, "'Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt.'" I want you to stop and think about what that verse is saying right there, okay? That, that's kind of crazy. God comes to this 80-year-old shepherd who's in the middle of nowhere, and he goes, hey, Moses, I want you to go to the most powerful man on the entire planet in the greatest empire that's ever been with the hugest army with the most wealth, and I want you to waltz up into his palace, look him in the face, and say, hey, bro, let my people go. <laughs> that's what he tells him to do. That's crazy, that's crazy. Uh, Matt, what if God came to you and, uh, and said, Amy Lee, I want, I'm sending you right now. I want you to fly. Get on a plane. I want you to fly to North, Co- North Korea, and I want you to march right into Kim Jong-un's house, and I want you to look him in the face and say, hey, man, let all these people go. I'm tired of you mistreating people. How do you think that would work out for you, Amy Lee? In my eyes. <laughs> yeah. Probably not very good, right? Number one, he doesn't know you. Like, who are, like, why should I listen to you? Who are you? Number two, you're probably facing certain death. And number three, you'd probably go, can't you just send somebody else? (laughs) That's exactly what Moses said. Just send somebody else, not me, anybody but me. It's just like God to do this though. God's going to use people that we wouldn't expect him to use. What about you? Maybe you have a failed past. Maybe you feel like you've blown it in your life or that you've run out of chances for God to really do something unique in your life. Maybe you feel insignificant or you feel like you're not very gifted. You look at the people around you and you think, well, God could use them, but there's no way God could ever really want to use me. Or maybe you don't really know what your purpose is, and like Moses, you're kind of just wandering around in the wilderness with some sheep. And you've kind of just resigned yourself to a life of, eh, ho-hum. Well, then you have a lot in common with Moses. And Moses had a lot of the same objections that you probably have, and so for the rest of our time, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the objections that Moses had to God's call on his life, and we're going to see how God responds. And I think you're going to find that you can relate to a lot of Moses's objections that he has for God's call on his life. So let's go ahead and let's jump right into it. Let's look at uh, objection number one or excuse number one. It's in verses 11 to 12, and it's this, I'm not qualified. Moses said, I'm not qualified. Look what he says in verse 11 and 12. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So let me give you a little bit of background real quick on Moses' failed past. So Moses was born an Israelite, but he was born during a time when Pharaoh had given a decree that every single male Israelite that was born should be thrown into the Nile River and drowned. He was basically practicing genocide to try to control the population of the Israelites. So uh, Moses' mom has him and sees that you know, he's a, you know, a unique child and, and she just you know, thinks there's no way I can let this happen to my son and shows she's willing to do whatever it takes to save his life. And so you may have heard the story, he puts him in a little basket and she sets him on the Nile River river, and he begins to flow down the river, and wouldn't you know it, uh, Pharaoh's daughter comes out to come to the river, and she sees this basket, and they, they get the basket from the store, and it's a baby, right? And so Moses's mom had sent uh, her Moses's older sister to go, and Moses's sister was kind of watching, and she's like, oh my gosh, a baby, wow, hey, uh, would you like me to go get a nurse for you so that uh, maybe a nurse can, can nurse this child. And she's like, yeah, that'd be a great idea. And so she takes Moses and Moses' mom actually gets to nurse Moses. And then after Moses is weaned, Pharaoh's daughter comes and she adopts him into Pharaoh's household. And Moses grows up in Egypt, but Moses knows he's an Israelite. And one day as he grows up, he comes outside and he sees one of his people being beaten by some Egyptian taskmasters. He sees an Israelite being beaten and, and, and this, the, the injustice of it. Uh, rose up in Moses' heart. He saw it. He was indignant. And Moses, you know, turned into like a civil rights activist. He's like, oh, heck no, bro. I'm going out there. And he goes and he kills this Egyptian taskmaster. Well, that was uh, mighty brave of him, but it wasn't a good choice because Pharaoh found out about it, and uh, Pharaoh wanted to kill him. And the Israelites weren't too happy with it either, and they rejected him. And so Moses, rejected by his own people and rejected by the Israelites, he flees. Off into the wilderness, where he meets himself, a nice girl, and he gets married, settles down, has a couple of kids, decides to become a professional sheep herder and just kind of live out in the country on his own and have a nice, quiet life where he won't be bothered anymore. And uh, so that's where we find Moses right now. So, you know, Moses was probably struggling with some feelings of inadequacy, low self esteem, failed past. And, you know, culture's answer to that today would be what? They would tell you, just practice positive self-talk, right? I I can do whatever I put my mind to. I'm strong. I'm great. I'm wonderful. And maybe maybe there was, you know, a a psychiatrist that was, you know, helping Moses out and Moses was walking around with his sheep going, yeah, I'm a great sheep herder. I'm strong. I'm wonderful. And Moses was giving himself some positive self-talk. But here's the thing. Does that really work? You see, the reality is, is that Moses was not qualified to do what called him to do. God called him to do. He wasn't qualified. And neither are you or I. I'm not qualified to do this, to be up here. You know, but God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. You may have heard that before. God does not call the qualified. He qualifies those that he calls. You see, Moses is focusing on the wrong eye here. Moses says, who am I? And God's trying to, to explain to Moses, it doesn't matter who you are. It matters who I am. It matters who I am. Look at God's answer. What does God tell Moses? What's God's answer to Moses' excuse? Somebody tell me what God says. I will be with you. I will be with you. See, none of us qualify, but Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, I love this passage. It says that God has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. How did God do that? How does God qualify us for eternal life? How does he qualify us to share in the inheritance of the saints? Well, if you were applying say for a, a depart, the, to be the department head of English at a university well you'd have to have a resume right and there'd have to be certain qualifications on that resume you'd probably have to have a doctorate degree if you're going to be the department head you'd have to have a good amount of experience to be a department head you know maybe some years under your belt as a professor you'd have to have a degree from a distinguished university something like that you'd have to have these qualifications and if you walk in like I could walk over uh, you know to Harvard University and go hey I'd like to be uh, the dean of you know the math and science department and they'd go, okay, where's your resume? And I'd show it to them, and they'd laugh me out of the building. Because I don't have I'm not qualified. I'm not qualified to be the dean of math and science at Harvard University. I just don't cut it. And see, when we take our resume to God and we and we bring our resume to God what we have, and we go, here God, here's what I've done. Am I good enough to be in your presence? Am I good enough to inherit eternal life? It falls short. We don't qualify. We don't qualify. So what did God have to do? He had to qualify us. And here's the way that God did that. God sent his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ came and he lived a perfect life here on earth. Jesus Christ's resume, off the charts. He qualifies for everything. There's nothing that Jesus Christ does not qualify for because Jesus never sinned. Our resume, pretty crappy. Not very good. And what did Jesus do? Jesus died on the cross. He took the punishment for your sins, and then He rose from the grave. You know what that means? That means that if we place our faith and trust in Jesus, He gives us His perfect resume, and He takes our terrible resume in our place. Jesus took what our resume deserved. You know what our resume deserves? It deserves death on the cross, just like Jesus received. It deserves the the whips on the back. and deserves the nails in the hands and the feet. But Jesus took what our resumes deserve, and he gives us what his resume deserves. That's the gospel. It's amazing. It's almost too good to be true, but it's true, and it's the only way that we can be qualified. It's the only way that we can be qualified. The answer to your weakness, listen to this, the answer to your weakness is not to dig deeper within yourself to find inner strength. That's what culture is going to tell you. Just dig deeper. The answer is not to dig deeper in yourself to find inner strength. The answer is to look outside of yourself to God. That's the answer to your weakness. Moses' second objection or his second excuse, others will reject me. Other people will reject me. Anybody familiar with the fear of other people? The fear of what people think? I know I am. Look at chapter 3 verse 13. Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, Moses asked this question, but this isn't Moses' real question. We see what his real motive is in chapter 4 verse 1. Look what he says here. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. You see, Moses is afraid of what his own people are going to think of him. He doesn't think that they're going to accept him. He, feared, he fears being rejected once again. Um, there's a there's a Christian hip hop artist uh, named Lecrae. Some of you guys know him. He's got a line in a song uh, that I love. He says uh, he says we live for their acceptance and we die from their rejection. He says we live for other people's acceptance and we die from their rejection. Is that not true in our lives sometimes? Is that not true? I mean, you think about uh, even even junior high kids. Um, you know, maybe you've heard a a junior high girl say something along the lines of when she gets embarrassed to school, she's like, my life is over, right, and, you know, in reality, you know, we would look and go, well, your life's not over, but we can do the same thing as adults, right, we're terrified about our reputation, right, we don't want to be embarrassed publicly, we don't. You ever been rejected before? (sighs) Seventh grade, (laughs) <laughs> Leanne Scott if she ever watches this sermon I apologize probably won't I haven't talked to her in probably 15 years I had a big crush on Leanne Scott short, blonde, real cute girl and uh, I had a crush on her for a long time and I finally worked up the courage to ask Leanne Scott out I'm sorry Jen and, uh, I, didn't, I didn't know Jen back then I asked Leanne Scott out and, uh, and she said no right in front of a bunch of other people and I was crushed crushed me I was devastated but you know looking back on that I realized I wasn't so much devastated that Leanne Scott said no I was devastated that everybody else knew that Leanne Scott said no because I was like man I just looked really bad in front of a lot of people this is going to hurt my street cred at school you <laughs> on know on a serious note this is something that I've struggled with in my daily life a lot uh, the fear of the opinions of other people as a kid, I always tried to fit in and you know, my happiness rose and fell based off of you know, whether I was kind of fitting in with the cool group or whether people loved me and respected me. Uh, if I was not feeling loved and accepted and respected, uh, I, had some, I had some depression that I struggled with during those times. Uh, and whenever I felt loved and respected and accepted by other people, then I was usually having a pretty good day. But other people were controlling me. You see, you see how that slavery... How fearing man more than God is actually enslavement for us. You know, many times we can, maybe we can couch it under excuses like, well, I'm just a really nice person and, you know, I just want to get along with everybody. But what we really mean is I don't want to lose my image of the nice person who is loved by everybody. Or maybe for, for me, it was, you know, a lot, a lot of the, my life, my excuse was, I'm just a serious person. I'm just a serious person, but really, what I was saying was, I want other people to take me seriously. I want respect. There's a fear that if we step out in obedience to God, we're going to lose what we need from other people. Ed Welch, in his book, uh, it's called Running Scared, Fear, Worry, and the God of Rest. If you struggle with any type, and even if you don't a lot, fear, anxiety, anything like that, I can't recommend this book enough. It has been transformative in my life. Uh, It's just incredible. Here's a quote from the book. He says, whatever you think you need will control you. If you need something from other people, whether it's love, acceptance, or approval, they hold the keys to something very valuable to you. You will live in fear that they might not deliver. You will fear those who are the gatekeepers to the fulfillment of your needs. Here's the underlying belief when we fear other people, when we fear the rejection of other people. What we're really saying we believe is that other people have something that I can't get from God. Other people can give me something that I can't get from God and so therefore I need them. I need what they can give me. Could be the fear of being open about our faith. Could be the fear of uh, sharing it because we need their approval. So, what's the solution? The solution is that we need to see that God is bigger and better than the people we fear. We need to see that God is bigger and better than the people we fear. God, look what God says to Moses. First of all, God, God reminds Moses who he is in verse 14 and 15. So remember, we talked about that name, I Am. He is other than. He is indescribable. He's ineffable. He was never created and always creating. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says this about God. It says, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. There's nothing in all of creation more magnificent than God. There's no person more magnificent than God. There's no person that can give you what God can give you. God also reveals His power to Moses. Look at chapter 4, verses 2-4, to which may be one of the funniest uh, passages in the entire Bible, and I'll explain why in a second. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put your hand out and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand, and he caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. I've always loved to imagine this scene in life. Moses is sitting there, and you know, Moses, his excuse was, behold, they're not going to believe me or listen to my voice. And God goes, Moses, what's that in your hand? It's a, it's a staff? <laughs> Throw it on the ground. Uh, okay ah! and he just runs away like takes off sprinting right would you not have done the same thing I mean if you threw a staff on the ground and that thing turns into a cobra I'm out of there faster than lightning no way I'm sticking around and then and then God says Moses go pick it up by the tail who anybody ever handled snakes before yeah where, where are you supposed to pick a snake up by not by, the tail. not by the tail right you don't pick up snakes by the tail bad idea you do that, you're asking to get bit by a snake, right? And God says, Moses, I want you to pick up the snake by the tail. God gives Moses three signs here to show him his power, but notice those signs don't come before Moses acts. They come as Moses steps out in obedience, right? Moses has to step out in obedience first. Moses has to reach down and pick that snake up by the tail, that snake's not turning into a staff before he picks it up. He's got, to t- he's got to reach down and he's got to pick it up. What is God saying to Moses through this? Well, the snake, uh, Pharaoh, used to wear uh, a funny hat. I don't know exactly what it's called. Some sort of hat, but it had a cobra on the front. And that cobra represented the power of Egypt. The military might of Egypt. And actually, uh, Egypt, ancient Egyptians believed that whenever Pharaoh had that hat on his head with that cobra, that he was a god. Pharaoh was worshipped as a god. And so God says, you know what I think of Pharaoh and all of his power? This is what I think of Pharaoh and his power. Throw that staff on the ground. It becomes a snake. Okay, pick it back up. Now it's not a snake. He's like, Pharaoh's power is nothing to me. Pharaoh's power is no power at all. Then God tells Moses, he says, okay, I want you, Moses, stick your hand inside your cloak. That's what he tells him to do next. And Moses sticks his hand, and then he brings it out, and his hand is just leprous, white as snow. That's a death sentence back then. You get leprosy, you're not getting rid of leprosy. It's going to slowly deteriorate your body over time, and it's going to kill you. And so Moses takes his hand out, and then God says, Moses, put it back in. And he puts it back in, take it out again. And he takes it out, and it's white as snow again. No more leprosy. Totally pure. God says, Moses, you know, sickness and disease, I've got all power over that as well. And God says, if they won't believe that, I want you to go and I want you to take some Nile from the water, and I want you to pour it out of the ground, and it's going to become blood. It says, take some Nile. And the Nile River, when you think of, uh, when you think of certain countries, you know, there's certain defining characteristics. And when we think of Egypt, I would think the, one of the first things that come to mind is the Nile River. Because without the Nile River, there is no Egypt. Uh, all, of their, all of their crops were grown on the side of the Nile River. Uh, they worshipped the Nile River also. The Egyptians worshipped a lot of things. They worshipped everything but God, it seems. But uh, the Nile River was their lifeline. And that was everything to them. And God says, I've got power over that too. But none of those signs come to Moses until Moses steps out in obedience. Here's the thing. We want guarantees from God. But God says that our guarantee is that I am has sent me. His guarantee is his character. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith it is impossible to please God. And I can tell you this. Guys, you will not experience the abundant life that Jesus promises in John 10.10 until you step out in faith on God's promises. You won't experience it. So how do we conquer the fear of man today? There's a quote uh, by John Bloom. He's a writer uh, on Desiring God. It's a blog. Here's what he says. He says, "...the person to whom we ascribe the most authority... To define who we are, what we're worth, what we should do, and how we should do it is the person we fear the most because it is the person whose approval we want most. So the person that that we ascribe the most authority to, the person that we look to to define who we are, what we're worth, what we should do, and how we should do it, that's the person that we fear the most because that is the person whose approval we want the most. So what's the solution? The solution is to fear God. Ascribe God the most authority. Let God define who you are, what you're worth, what you should do, and how you should do it. Do you see what God is doing here? God answers Moses' fear of man by showing Moses that he is far more fearsome, far more powerful, and far more trustworthy than any other human being, even Pharaoh. God's showing Moses, Moses, Pharaoh is nothing to me. You don't need to be afraid of Pharaoh, and you don't need to be afraid of that your people are going to reject you. I hold all authority and all power. So for you guys today, if you're looking for love, acceptance, safety, all those things in another person, can I just encourage you this morning to stop? They can't give it to you anyways. Only God in Christ offers you the love, acceptance, and safety that you cannot earn and you cannot lose. Can't earn it and you can't lose it. So, a couple of things you can do today. Number one, confess your fear of man. Confess it to God. Confess it to somebody else. It's a sin, it's a sin of unbelief. But God is gracious and God forgives sin. Number two, memorize scripture. I'm actually memorizing Psalm chapter 27 right now uh, that speaks to uh, fear and anxiety. Number three, exercise courageous obedience. Take those steps of faith. Deuteronomy 31.6, God tells Joshua, or Moses and Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Objection number three. So we looked at the first two objections. Objection number three for Moses is this. I can't do it. I can't do it. Look at what Moses says in chapter 4, verses 10 to 12. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. So Moses, Moses says, I would totally do this, Lord, but unfortunately, I'm just a terrible speaker, so I'm probably not your guy. And God says, seriously, who made your mouth? Who made you? And don't miss the irony here of what's happening. Moses calls God Lord. And that word Lord, it, means, it, it literally means sovereign master. So Moses is like, Sovereign master, the one that I will obey no matter what. The one that, who, whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to jump when you do it. Sovereign master, I can't do it. No. He calls God Lord and then he says, I can't do it. What Moses is doing here is, Moses elevates his own inabilities over God's sovereignty. He elevates his own inabilities over God's sovereignty. We do this all the time. We do this all the time. We, we start looking at ourselves and our own inabilities, and we take off our eyes off of God and His ability. This happened with, with Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah had a similar excuse when God called him, and Jeremiah chapter one says, "Then I, uh, God calls Jeremiah to go to the people and prophesy, and he says, "Ah, Lord, God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth." But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth. For, to, for all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Sounds pretty much like what God is telling Moses here. Can I just tell you, God is probably going to call you to your weaknesses. Whatever you think your weaknesses are, that's probably the thing that God's going to call you to. God's answers, God has several answers to our I can't. I think God's main answer to our I can't is I never said you could. I never said you could. God says, I will be with you and I will teach you what you shall say. See, here's a thing, couple things I want to point out. Number one, God knows your weakness. He knows your weakness already. You don't have to tell him. Moses didn't have to tell God, but God, you may not have known this, but I'm not really a good speaker. God's like, dude, I know I made you. I made you that way. I made your mouth. He wouldn't call you to something He's not going to equip you to do. God's not going to call you to something that He's not going to equip you to do. We have to come back to that faith expressed in obedience thing. He's not going to equip us until we respond in obedience to the call. So if you're waiting to be equipped before you go, you're going to be waiting your entire life. You've got to go and then you're going to get equipped. You've got to go and then you're going to get equipped. Number two, God gave you your weakness so that you will learn to depend on him and not yourself. The Apostle Paul expressed this really well in 2 Corinthians 1.9. He says uh, they were experiencing an intense time of persecution. And he's writing recounting this to the church in Corinth. And he says, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. That's how bad it had gotten. We felt we had received the sentence of death. But listen to this. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You see, they were at the end of their rope. Paul and his team were at the end of their rope. There was nothing more that they could do, but Paul recognized that it wasn't up to me and my strength to get this job done. It was up to me to rely on God who raises the dead. Another thing to point out here is that God chooses to work through your weakness so that He gets the glory. God chooses on purpose to work through your weakness so that He gets glory. Remember that theme in Exodus, that they may know that I am the Lord? You're going to see it over and over in this book. Over and over we're going to see God's people come to the edge of despair. Ed Welch calls calls God the 11th hour deliverer at that last second. God's going to let us get there to that last second many times. God's going to let the people of Israel get into impossible situations on purpose. And He's going to let you do the same. God designed you with your weaknesses. He designed you with them. When we are weak, God gets credit and glory, the credit and glory that rightly belongs to Him. That way we can't boast. Is God calling you to obey Him in something that you feel unable to do? Maybe it's speaking up against bullying at school and befriending the unpopular. Maybe it's going overseas to take the gospel to an unreached people group. Maybe it's just sharing the gospel with your coworker, or maybe it's laying down an addiction or a persistent sin that has control over you. What we need to do is we need to abide. In John 15:5, Jesus said, "Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing." And I think we see that clearly here. That's what God's trying to tell Moses. Moses says, I can't do it. And God says, I never said you could. You've got to abide in me. You've got, to, you've got to lean into me to get the strength to do what I'm calling you to do. Guys, if you aren't spending time soaking in God's word, making your requests known in prayer and listening to him in prayer, you shouldn't be surprised that you're living in fear and avoiding obedience to God. You shouldn't be surprised. Because if you're not abiding, you're going to continue to live in fear. And you're going to continue to avoid obedience. You're disconnected from your only source of strength. Jesus said, apart from me you can do nothing in John fifteen five. But listen two verses later in John 15, 7 and 8. Listen to what he says. He says, if, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You hear what Jesus is saying there? He's saying, if you abide in me, there's no limit to what I can do in and through your life. Ask whatever you wish, whatever your weakness is, I'll supply the strength in the midst of it. If you abide in me, and then he says, this actually glorifies my Father. God actually gets glory when you go to Him and you ask Him for help. Why don't we do it more? I ask myself that sometimes. Why don't I do that more? It actually glorifies God. God's not disappointed in you when you go to Him and you say, God, I'm weak and I can't handle this anymore. I need you. It actually gives Him glory. And He's pleased to answer those prayers. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. God is glorified to give us strength in our weaknesses. Objection or excuse number four, is the last one. And this is probably the worst one for Moses. I won't do it. I won't do it. Look at verse 13 and 14 of chapter 4. But Moses said, Oh my Lord, please just send somebody else. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. I hope one of the things that you've seen um, in this passage today is how patient God is with our doubts and our fears and our questions. You see how patient God is with Moses? Over and over Moses keeps coming up with these objections, and God is patient. And guess what? He's patient with your doubts, and your fears, and your objections as well. God is gentle with us, just like He was with Moses. And it's okay to ask God questions. It's okay to be honest with God about your fears. He wants you to do those things, okay? But, having said that, God's anger is kindled when we know the answer, and we just simply refuse to obey. His anger is kindled when we know the answer, and we just... Say, like Moses, God, just send somebody else. I don't want to do it. One of our uh, favorite excuses whenever we get pulled over by a police officer for speeding is, oh, I didn't see that sign, officer. I'm so sorry. Right? We plead ignorance. One of the funniest things uh, is to watch Cops. And I don't know if you've ever watched an episode of Cops. And you'll see like a guy get pulled over. And he'll go out there searching him. And they pull like this big bag of weed out. And he's like, he's like, oh, oh how did that get in there? I never even knew that was in there. Like, really, man? You didn't know there was a giant bag of weed in your pants? Like, OK. You know, but that's what we do. We plead ignorance, right? So it's, it's our first defense mechanism. But today... Today, guys, we cannot plead ignorance. We know the answers. If you're in this room this morning, you've heard the answers and you know the truth. Some of you here today are in this boat. Some of you know that you need to obey Jesus in baptism. Some of you know that you need to share the gospel. Some of you know that you need to stop looking at pornography. Some of you know that you need to forgive somebody that you've been holding a grudge against. Some of you know you need to stop criticizing other people. But you just aren't doing it. Like Moses, you've looked at God and said, I don't want to. Just send somebody else. My dad is an extremely patient, caring man. But there were only a few times where, ever, where I ever looked at my dad after he told me to do something and said no. That didn't happen very often because I quickly discovered that that brought out my dad's wrath. He didn't appreciate that very much when he told me to do something and I just looked at him and said no. Dad's in here, I'm sure you can relate. Um, I'm starting to learn that with a puppy that sometimes when I tell this puppy to do something and it just ignores me, it brings out this anger inside of me. <laughs> So it's kind of like a prelude for kids, I guess. Let's call it for what it is, guys. Let's, let's just call this for what it is. James chapter 4, verse 17 says this, Whoever knows the right thing to do and does not do it for him, it is sin. It's sin. You're living in sin right now. If you know that God is calling you to obedience on something, and you've just basically looked at God like Moses and said, God, I just don't want to do it. Send somebody else. You're living in sin and you need to stop. Christians cannot continue to live in persistent sin. The sin is any time we disobey God and we don't do what He tells us to do. And, you know, really sin is unbelief. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 18 and 19 says. To whom did God swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And he's referring back to the Israelites, and we're going to get to this story later on in the series, when God tells them, okay, go up and take the promised land. But they refuse to go because they go and send spies, and they find out there's giants. And they're scared, and once again, they don't believe that God is with them, and that God can give them victory, and so they don't go. So, but look here in verse 18, God calls it disobedience. And in verse 19, he calls it unbelief. It's the same thing. Disobedience and unbelief go hand in hand. There are two sides of the same coin. Not sharing the gospel, not forgiving somebody, not laying down that idol, not obeying the call of God on your life, whatever it is, it's all rooted in the fear that God won't come through. If we won't lay down that idol that we've been dependent on for comfort, it's all rooted in the fear that God's not going to be enough for us, that he can't give us what that person can give us, or he can't give us what that thing can give us. Not sharing the gospel, it's all rooted in in the fear that if I do that, that I'm not going to get what I need from these other people. I'm not going to get the respect, or I'm not going to get the love that I need from these other people. It's all rooted in unbelief, guys. The answer, though, is not to beat yourself up and try harder. It's not to beat yourself up and try harder. The answer is believing God when he says, I will be with you. I am has sent you. I will put my words in your mouth. It's believing God when he says those things. It's remembering who God is, the great I am. The one who has power over Pharaoh. The one who has power over sickness and disease. The one who has power over nations, over the Nile River. The good news today is that God is so patient and long-suffering with us. Though God is angry at Moses, I mean, just look at his gracious response in in verses 14 to 16. He actually tells Moses, Okay, Moses. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I am gonna, want you to get your brother Aaron, and Aaron will be your spokesperson. But I'm still going to use you. God removes every one of Moses' excuses, and he even gives him kind of a little bit of a crutch to lean on, and his brother Aaron. Even in his anger, God is gracious towards us. The application for this point is to simply confess your unbelief. Repent and act today on what you know God has commanded you to do. There's joy on the other side of obedience. So to close out, let's recap real quick. Those excuses we looked at, Moses' excuse, excuses. Number one, I'm not qualified. Others will reject me. I can't do it. I won't do it. Tony Marita points something out. He's a, he's a pastor and a commentator. Uh, and he points something out about this passage I want you to listen to what he says. He says this, God responded to each of Moses' excuses and questions with statements about his own sovereignty and power. You notice that? Every one of Moses' excuses, God responded in the same way. He responded with statements about his own sovereignty and power. The big idea is is simply this, the answer to all of our fears and our objections is not found in looking to ourselves but to God. The answer to our fears and objections are not found in looking to ourselves, but to God. The NIV application commentary says, however legitimate their concerns may be, they are in the final analysis irrelevant. God is greater than their inadequacies, lack of experience, or talent. So, whatever excuse you can come up with for why you can't walk out in faith on God's call in your life today, it's irrelevant. God's call on my life is dangerous. It doesn't matter. I'll get rejected. Doesn't matter. I'm not qualified. Doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. It's irrelevant because it doesn't lie within you. The strength doesn't lie within you. The answer doesn't lie within you. So any I excuse you come up with, it's irrelevant because it's not about you. It's about him. Who am I? Doesn't matter. I will be with you. I will be with you. This story is about a deliverer that God raised up. But obviously Moses is an imperfect deliverer. Moses says later in Deuteronomy 18, he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Moses was speaking of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the better Moses. We're going to see that throughout this series, that Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus didn't just give the law to God's people. He kept the law. He fulfilled it, and then He took the curse of the law by dying on the cross for our sins. Jesus has gone before us, and when we trust in Him... We're united with Christ. You see, we have something better than just God's promises. If we are united in faith with Jesus Christ, that means you have the Holy Spirit dwells in, dwelling in you, which means you have the Spirit of God living within you. You have the full access to all that God is dwelling within you, His strength, His power. So we don't have to try and obey on our own. I think Ephesians 3, 16 sums it up best. When Paul says this, Paul prays, I pray that God may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Did you catch that? He said, I pray that you'd be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It's through faith in Jesus Christ that His Spirit dwells in us to give us power in our inner being. It's through faith in Christ that you have the power to follow out out in obedience to God's call on your life. Maybe you've never experienced this power before in your life. Maybe you've never actually placed your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Maybe that's something that you want. And you're sitting there going, I want God's forgiveness in my life this morning. I want to know that I'm forgiven of my sins and that I can follow God and that I can have access to this power that He promises to give to those who are His children. Today you can do that simply by praying, by confessing your sins to God, for acknowledging that Jesus Christ died on the cross in your place, that He rose from the grave, and deciding today to make Him your King and your Lord and to follow Him. The Bible says that when you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. You can do that today during our discussion time. Uh, For the rest of us, um, we're going to have some discussion questions up on the screen. and We'll go ahead and get with our uh, our tables real quick. And for the next eight minutes or so, we, by the way, for those of you who are new, uh, we do this uh, every week at the end of the service. We have, you know, take a few minutes and we just discuss what we just heard in the sermon uh, with our tables around us. So let's take about eight minutes to do that. And then we'll come and do the closing song and we'll dismiss, okay?